Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Buying real estate requires a lot of money, but you can buy parcels of land in growing areas for less than $500. There are millions of acres of land that you can buy for any reasonable offer as a result of tax liens, inheritances, or any number of reasons. Mike Deaton, co-founder and president of Deaton Equity Partners, has been buying and selling land for the past five years and parlaying his earnings into cash-flowing multifamily assets. So today we have with us a gentleman who I've been having, we've been having quite a nice little kind of banter back and forth before I just hit record. Nice guy doing fantastic things, made some really great life changes in the last five or so years. Interesting guy, been around the world. Uh, he is the co-founder and president of Deaton Equity Partners. He's a multifamily syndicator operator, uh, investor, developer, rural land purveyor, and also a high-level coach. Uh, we have with us Mike Deaton. Mike, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to pleasure to speak with you. You got it. And I know you're, you know, because we, we, we talked, you're almost at 10,000 feet elevation where, where you're uh, living, and I, and I just hope you stay hydrated. Um, <laughs> And so where, where did the Mike Deaton story start out? Where, where'd you grow up? And, and give me some uh, give me some cool background. Sure. I'm a Texas boy. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, many, many years ago now. Pretty much grew up there. We, my, my parents were pioneers of the house flipping model. I think I grew up in, you know, 10 or 12 different houses. We'd, uh, we'd basically buy an older home, live in it, fix it up. To a, to a level to sell it, and then we're on to the next one. And then, you know, so as a result, we kind of lived all around the Fort Worth area. And then my dad got into home building as a profession. So we, we moved a little bit further east to Arlington, Texas. And then um, uh, I went to TCU there in Fort Worth. So stayed, stayed home for university and just kind of started the workforce out of that. Uh, I, I got a job in high tech at Motorola, who was, you know, really uh, pretty strong back in the time when I got out of college. Um, just really doing more manufacturing, a little bit of light engineering, quality work, and um, just climbed the corporate ladder from there. I, I worked at Motorola for a good many years, uh, transitioned to Nokia when Nokia became really king of the mobile handset world. Nokia took me all over the world. That's kind of where I got a lot of my uh, global exposure and traveling to different sites. And uh, in 2006, got the opportunity to go open um, a manufacturing facility in Romania. So I went uh, on an overseas expat contract for a few years there and uh, met my now wife. And we came back to the U.S. in 2010, lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for a little while. And as I was telling you, life series of life events kind of opened up um, from kids going to college to us leaving the W-2 workforce for various reasons. And uh, we took that moment to chart a new course. And that that ultimately led me here to, yeah, 10,000 feet elevation and pine trees and great lung capacity. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, that's, a, that's a short synopsis. We can certainly drill in. Uh, all those areas. Well, I, I would assume, and, and and this is really an inappropriate, you know, c 
comment, but I'm the king of inappropriateness. But I can only imagine your wife is beautiful coming from Romania. <laughs> yeah, very stereotypical. No, no, I, uh, yes, she is. She's, and, and, and more than anything, she's beautiful on the inside, which has just been a joy to, uh, to forge this entrepreneurial lifestyle with. I couldn't ask for a better partner in life or a better partner in business because she, quite frankly, um, I was doing an interview yesterday for a local um, Colorado publication. And, you know, this is, I, I consider this one of my success factors, if not my biggest success factor, is having a partner that will allow you the space to shine on one hand, but to take risks knowing that it could flop and we're going to be okay. And that, you know, more than anything, really uh, just sets me up for success. So it's been a, a real just beautiful life experience, you know, since we met and, and we met right out of the gate. So yeah, backstory on that. I, I, um, I separated from a previous marriage in 2006 and just was really personally beaten down. Just, you know, I saw that as a, as a huge failure and, uh, it was really hard to end a marriage and, and I had two daughters, you know, from that and just kind of split up the family. And so, uh, in many ways, upon reflection, this this opportunity to go overseas and work, it came in an opportune time. But, you know, in many ways, I was running away from, I was escaping, let's say, um, a bad, what I what, what was a bad taste in my mouth. But I went over to Romania thinking, okay, I'm single again. I'm going to just explore this life of bachelorhood. And uh, I, the first moment I stepped foot on ground there and went into the office, Lydia was working for Nokia as well. And, you know, sparks flew and kind of it just it went from there. So uh, my my plans quickly got rerouted all for the better. But, um, you know, it was a, uh, interesting the way life uh, has different plans for you sometimes. Well, they, they say, tell if you want to make God laugh, tell them your plans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. I'm going to wind all the way back since you feel like you're you're a guy comfortable telling the truth, which I so much appreciate and being willing to kind of be open, which is I love that. Yeah. So so when you were as a kid, your folks were flipping houses and you were you're moving to all these. I'm assuming that at least a couple, if not a few more different school districts. A, am I correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I switched schools. Um, you know, not not as frequent as we did houses, but definitely switched school districts multiple times. What was that like? You know, um, it, definitely there's an awkwardness. Um, so I think I went through first through third at a at one school, and I went to fourth and fifth, and then you know sixth and seventh in Fort Worth was packaged. Sixth, seventh, and eighth was packaged as a middle school. I went to sixth and seventh, and then we moved to city, a different city where um, you know it was more of a junior high focus, where you have seventh, eighth, and ninth, and and then into high school. And so you know, for me, I'm not an extrovert by any means, but I'm very comfortable interacting with people. Uh, if if you know what I mean, like I, I recharge on a solo basis and with a small circle of friends, but I'm super comfortable uh, interacting in public. It's just, it can be tiring. Um, and so I think, you know, the experience for me, it built a resiliency and an ability to do that. So I, I make friends quickly. Um, I have a broad range of friends. Like I wasn't part of any one click, if you will, growing up. I was an athlete, but I wasn't only hanging out with the athletes. I was also um, you know, I got good grades. And so I hung out with some of the nerds. Uh, 
And so, you know, for me, I never looked at it as a negative. I can, I, I have often been a bit jealous of people that grew up in a, you know, they had lifelong childhood friends that they grew up and, and stayed with and lived in the same house. But I also appreciate the experience that it gave me. So, you know, there, there's there's definitely good and bad. I'm, I'm pretty much an optimist and a silver lining kind of a person. So uh, I, I take away uh, the positives out of the experience. Got it. That's very interesting. I had some of that experience uh, myself, and, and I can just tell in, in listening to you speak that you were way more able to adapt than I was, but we're here to talk about you. Um, <laughs> so, so what athlete, what sports? As a young kid, I played kind of all of them. I did a little swimming, uh, some baseball, some soccer, uh, and then once I became old enough where my parents would let me play football, I was kind of all in on football, which, you know, that's probably the, <laughs> it's it's one of the biggest sports in Texas, but it's probably the worst sport for any type of, I mean, what am I going to do with that now? Right. I mean, I got some athleticism, but there's no uh, old man's football league that I go play at or whatever. So <laughs> golf or tennis would have been a better choice, but you know, that's, that's a bit of the peer pressure of growing up. What position? Uh, I was early on more, uh, always defense oriented. Um, I was kind of more of a defensive back early on. And then, uh, when I was a junior in high school, our coaches took a different approach and I'm not a, I'm not a big guy by any means in high school. I, I lifted a fair amount of weights and, um, and started, you know, putting, I, I was still probably 180 pounds wet and, uh, they, they had a change in strategy and moved me and one other guy that that was a uh, similar size to me on the defensive line. So we were defensive tackles just to gain some speed and agility down in the interior. So I got to play defensive tackle my last couple of years and yeah, did really well. Okay. Uh, very, very cool. So 2000, I think you said 2017 ish, you guys transitioned. There were circumstances that you guys transitioned out of W2 and, and I guess uh, now you said your dad, you know, your, your folks were flipping houses and he was a home builder. So I don't know if that informed your decision to get into real estate or kind of what were the circumstances and what was your entree into that, um, into real estate at that point? Yeah. Interestingly enough, there's no conscious level correlation that I can find in, in that. Um, there could certainly be some, uh, you know, circumstantial and, and uh, subconscious level issues, but um, I, yeah, so I climbed the corporate ladder. Uh, I was in operations and supply chain in and about uh, 2011 or 12, Microsoft purchased the handset portion of Nokia. And so I transitioned with that and became a Microsoft employee uh, living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Microsoft obviously headquartered in Washington. And I took on essentially the equivalent of what my role was uh, now with a new company, but they had different strategies, whereas Nokia was a little more vertically integrated. Microsoft outsourced a lot of their um, hardware and supply chain type stuff, and they kept obviously the software uh, in-house. But, um, you know, I spent a few years doing that. I, I traveled a lot as well because I had a, a role that was responsible for the Americas region. And so I had teams from, you know, Chile, down uh, up to, uh, and up into Canada. And so fundamentally for me, the transition from Nokia, a Scandinavian headquartered and operated company, super people focused, uh, a lot of uh, long-term development, 
going on there and softer skill focus into Microsoft, a big U.S. behemoth of a company that is uh, super profit minded. What have you done for me lately? Um, just, you know, the, the culture shift was was uh, large. So anyway, over the course of a few years, my I had a small team here in Dallas-Fort Worth or there in Dallas-Fort Worth and had outsourced pretty much all of our job functions. And for me to go anywhere else with Microsoft was really going to require a move to um, the Seattle area and just really wasn't looking to do that. And so in 2016, I was officially let go and um, I got a nice package because my seniority carried over from Nokia into Microsoft. I had a lot of uh, years there. At about the same time, my wife, Lydia, was working in healthcare as a recruiter. Her company moved from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, or they didn't move, but they had an office there, and they consolidated operations back in northwestern Arkansas. And so we both found ourselves unemployed. And at that moment, you know, I started putting out my resume again and was getting responses from other big tech companies, Amazons and Teslas and Apples. But it was just kind of gut-wrenching to go through this process, which is already gut-wrenching to go through the interview process and, you know, put yourself out there to, to apply for jobs. But just the thought of, you know, what was a company culture going to be like at one of these companies? You know, all, all these things, how much travel. And so, you know, Lydia and I took a moment to really introspect and reflect on, you know, what it is we wanted out of this next phase of our life. We were also fortunate in in a way in that I had daughters from my previous marriage and one was already in college, the other was just about to enter college. That was all set aside and paid for, so we didn't really have to worry about, you know, meeting that uh, that help that we wanted to give. And so we empty nested and uh, we just decided let's let's try something different. And the story with real estate is that so just prior to being let go, I had been revisiting um, some Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure, you know, anyone in real estate is is fairly familiar with that. But, you know, the whole concept of generate, get on the business and investor side of the cash flow quadrant, as he calls it, and find ways to generate cash flow, right? Make your money work for you instead of you working uh, and spending your time for money. So I had started exploring what kind of side hustles I could do. And in that process, encountered uh, two different podcasts where guys were talking about investing in raw vacant land and essentially flipping it. And I was intrigued. The returns sounded too good to be true, but I invested in um, an education packet and I had that. And it was really just sitting collecting dust on my desk because I was working full time job and um and uh, the rest of life that goes along with that. So that kind of, at that moment, we decided, well, let's give this a go. And we um, started, you know, pursuing that. We we dove deep into it. We went to boot camps um, where we met other people that were doing this. We found an investor. We found a coach. Um, I'm sorry, not an investor. We found mentors and a coach. We set aside our own money. We had a chunk of money that we just said, let's put this as startup uh, seed money into our business and, and run with it. And um, over the course of, you know, I would say 12 to 18 months, we built it up into a, a nice base of, of cash flow. And um, 
you know, the business model itself is pretty simple. It's just buy land inexpensively, similar to house flippers. There's a direct marketing approach where you reach out to landowners and say, hey, would you be willing to sell your property at this price? And uh, there's a small percentage of people that will do it for various reasons. They've either inherited it or they had a, a spouse pass away or, or for various reasons that they're tired of paying taxes. They thought they were going to build their dream home and they just aren't. And so they'll, you know, kind of liquidate out of their position and, and then we'll resell it. A lot of times what we do is we'll owner finance. And so we have uh, promissory notes uh, similar to rental income, uh, but, you know, for a finite amount of time, whenever that contract expires and, and we built that up into a nice business. And then uh, so, you know, there really wasn't, uh, I, I often reflect on the fact that my dad was very entrepreneurial. My mom was a school teacher, so I had like a rich dad and a poor dad uh, in my life, but rich I went- dad, A rich, rich dad, poor mom. Yeah, poor mom, yeah. Thanks for the clarification there. Um, <laughs> there can be, I guess, a, a dad-dad situation you know, in today's society. So <laughs> yeah. good, good, good to clarify that. Um, I wasn't thinking that, but you know, but you you make an you be, make yeah. you make an interesting point. Anyway. <laughs> hey, street smart listeners! I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P and L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. I went, uh, I was a first child. I have a younger sister and I was the achiever and the, you know, the pleaser. And for me, drilled in my head was just, um, you go to high school, you get good grades, you go to university, you continue to get good grades, you get out, you get a W-2 job and you feed your 401k. And, you know, that uh, I can honestly say that works for a lot of people. It probably would have worked for me. Um, to a degree, but my lifestyle right now is something that I've never dreamed of in terms of the freedom and flexibility and the ability to set my own income levels just based on, you know, the success of my businesses or not. And uh, I just, I, I wish, um, on the one hand, I do wish I would have been exposed to it earlier. On the other hand, I'm a person that genuinely believes all of life's experiences have taken me to this point today. So I really would not go back and change anything because I'm genuinely happy with, with where I am today. And I don't know how it would have turned out if I would have gone a different path or something, but um, you know, I, I am truly blessed right now to, uh, to kind of have that. So, so you say or said 12 to 18 months, you built it into, you know, a decent amount of cash flow, and um, you know, you're, Buying land and, and then doing um, you know, some owner financing and and you know, you're generating cash flow. So my question is, did you like when would you say when you say Mike twelve to eighteen months? When did that eighteen months in your mind or the way you say it conclude? And then did you transition or are you transitioning into multifamily and or why? So there's about three questions in there. Yeah, no worries. So. 
like I said, we we spent probably the last half of 2016 um, reflecting, thinking, generating some ideas and, until we committed. And, and it quite literally, I think, was January of 2017 that we said, OK, let's go all in on land. And we went to our first um, weekend boot camp and, and signed up for some programs and got some help. And so uh, it took us six months really to set up our business get some inventory and sell that first property. After that, things accelerated fairly quickly. And that second semester, we built up our... And and so in combination with that, we decided to, I'll say downsize. We sold our our house in Plano. We moved to Colorado um, into the Boulder area and we rented uh, a townhome just and so part of that logic was, you know, if we could live anywhere in the United States, where would we go? And we're both drawn to the mountains. And so we had some friends in the Boulder area and we said, well, let's just park it in Boulder for a little bit and explore Colorado and see where we would even consider living. And so, you know, I would say physically we downsized cost of living wise. We were probably around the same because the cost of living is, is uh, fairly more expensive in the Boulder area than it is in Dallas Fort Worth area. But um, yeah, so for us, really, it was about that first goal for our business was getting to black. And so it was to stop pulling, you know, stop living off of savings and get our business in the black. And so within the 12 months, we had done that. Then our next goal was, okay, what's a comfortable level for us to get to? And then we've just been stepping it up ever since that. And so fast forward, you know, maybe two years, 2019, I would say in 2020, our first um, <laughs> our first sizable tax bill came because of the income we were making. And we both said, holy cow, I'm not going to pay this much in taxes every year. And so we started looking for ways to offset you know, the, the passive, uh, or, or our income with passive losses. And that took us into depreciable assets of some sort. And we were looking at storage units, uh, mobile home parks, multifamily, single family even. And through that research, you know, there really wasn't a clear winner. There wasn't anything out there that I could see that said, go into multifamily. It's the best asset class, go into mobile home parks. It's, you know, easier, better, whatever. We just ultimately said, Let's start with multifamily. Um, we did see that multifamily seemed to be more, seemed to be a little preferred over single family, just in terms of the quickness of being able to scale the amount of depreciation that you could get per your investment. Um, and so we went down that path uh, and started in, uh, I would say, 2020. We, we started kind of in earnest researching multifamily. And then I would say mid-year 2020, we took the plunge and we, we followed a similar path. We found a mentor. We um, signed up for coaching programs to help, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, buying a multifamily property that's 10 or $20 million. Um, the cost of a misstep can be quite severe. So, you know, any, um, any upfront experience that you can uh, connect with is just so super helpful. So, you know, the really the tax equation is is what pulled us into um, multifamily. And uh, the last 
year and a half, let's say, coming up on two years, we've been running both businesses and in a parallel track. And uh, I, I suspect that that will be the case going forward. Just um, th- they marry well together and they diff- both from a diversification standpoint, as well as, like I said, the taxes and the income. And then, you know, a small thread woven throughout that equation is back in 2016, 17, when I was exploring, you know, what I wanted to do. One of the things that I really loved about my role in the corporate world was coaching and mentoring others. And so, you know, I, I maintain some level of that uh, on a very small base. I had at one point thought that I would kind of go full time into coaching, but, you know, it, it requires a lot of time for me to do it effectively. Uh, I like to invest uh, a lot of time. So I really just try to keep uh, one or two clients at any given time that I'm that I'm helping with but you know that's part of what I love about giving back and and helping others succeed so it's uh it's kind of more of a value that I like to to foster so that that's the the third leg of the of the pedestal that I um maintain a bit of got it it, it just incidentally just questions what boot camp did you start with on the land and then who did you use for a multifamily mentor yeah, so the the podcasts that I had listened to referenced a company, let's call it, uh, The Land Geek, which is Mark Podolsky's brand. And we, I had purchased his toolkit. And with that toolkit came some tickets to a boot camp. And so, you know, we went to, um, to his boot camp and it was in San Antonio, I think in early 2017. And at the time back then, there was a certain... Uh, he had a certain program of support, and one of those was was a coaching program. I think now he's restructured it a little bit so that there's a few more tiers of ways that you can that you can get um, an exposure into land investing from you know group level to uh, all the way up to one on one coaching and stuff. But um, yeah, it was Mark has been uh, kind of our our coach and mentor. He's a great community. Uh, he's a super fantastic guy, just full of energy, passionate about what he does. And so he he kind of got us our our start in the land business, and then you know we followed like I said a similar path on multifamily, and we started researching the different uh, you know gurus out there that that have their program, and ultimately we settled with um, a gentleman named Mark Kenny out of Dallas Fort Worth, and he has a a group called Think Multifamily, and for us um, his is a lot smaller than some of the others, and it's a little more intimate, and uh, you deal directly with Mark in terms of any interactions and coaching versus some of these other programs have teams of coaches that essentially students that have evolved uh, at a certain level and and they do the coaching. So his program resonated a lot uh, more closely with us and we still partner with Mark on our multifamily deals. Uh, he's just got a wealth of experience and he's a level-headed guy. He's seen it all. He doesn't really fluster and um, that's that's what I want uh, behind me as we as we take down some of these deals. Got it. Are you on the land side of it? Is then the model still, is is it uniformly or close to uniformly? You basically go out, get something at a, at a decent discount that, you know, warrants acquiring it. And then you sell it to somebody on owner financing. And and that's how you generate your cash flow. Cause I, I've been told, I don't know, you know, I don't know much about land, but I've been told there's just so many different ways to approach it. But is that your basic model that you're adhering to? Yeah, that's correct. And there, there is uh, just a plethora of ways to do it. 
across if you look at it as a little a little supply chain but yeah our model is is really still direct outreach to landowners we find those that uh, are willing to sell once uh, at a certain price we personally manage or you know not our team manages that transaction so our business handles that transaction and then we'll turn around and market it at you know at or near market cost and then I would say 90% of what we do is still owner finance. There's, you know, 10 to 15% of these will, somebody will want to buy for a property and just cash and which is always nice to infuse into the business. But yeah, that's largely our model. There's a whole industry built around this um, land business. And so there's wholesalers just like there are in single family homes or whatever. There's people that will go out and acquire larger volume of properties and sell those at a, you know, somewhere in between the market cost and what they purchased it for so that they can make a profit and you can still uh, make a profit. There's labor-based resources uh, in terms of, you know, virtual assistants or assistants. There's um, systems that help automate some of the processes. So yeah, it's a little cottage industry, I would call it, and and uh, different things. But yeah, that's largely our model is, is still just buy directly and then um, resell it. In what are the average size deals that you're doing when you acquire uh, uh, land? In terms of money, what we try to, so there's, uh, as you would expect, you can sell land from, let's just say a dollar to $10,000 per month on a note. And so we found somewhere in the 200 to $400 per month, like a car payment sized payment, which I guess that's really not a car payment size anymore, but used to be a car payment size. The number of potential buyers is really, you know, at a large spot. Once you start going, you know, 500 plus on a monthly payment, obviously your buying pool shrinks. And so in order to, and on top of that, we like to get our investment back within a year. So if we pay $2,000 for a property, then, you know, if we set our payment at around 200 plus or minus, we'll recoup our investment. And then beyond that, um, we'll, we'll start enjoying the profit. So our deals tend to be, I would say, between $2,500 to $7,500 on our side, on what we're buying the land for. And then, you know, we'll in turn sell it for, I don't know, 15000 to uh, 20000 um, on the flip. So it's... Uh, somewhere three to 400%, you know, total return, but it, it usually works out to be about a hundred percent return uh, annually. The drawback with land is, you know, until you ramp up and I know people that have done this, but until you ramp up more of a full scale business, it's hard to like, if you have a hundred thousand dollars to invest, it's hard to really invest that in 20 or 30 small parcels of land and, and get that, uh, deployed such that you can get the return versus like in a multifamily deal, you can easily put that into a deal and start getting your returns back um, a lot more quickly. And so the the scale is a little harder to get up to a higher level. Like I said, I, I do know people who do it and have done it and we're on our way to doing it on a little slower path. We've, we've just been more organic in our growth, but you know, you can hire a team and deploy a massive amount of uh, direct mailing campaigns to canvas uh, a bunch of areas and and really uh, deploy things if if you choose to do that we just kind of have taken a little more of a laid-back approach and do you identify or have you identified a market or two that you're where you're doing most of your acquisitions of the land 
We do. Yeah. I mean, when we started, we were living in Dallas, Fort Worth, and we kind of took this approach, let's invest close to home. And so we started in uh, northeastern Texas and uh, really didn't have a whole lot of luck. We moved to West Texas, where there's just a massive amount of, of land. And we had a lot of luck there with well, with both buying and selling, it's not our, you know, our preference, obviously, since we live in the mountains, is pine trees, uh, mountain, mountainous areas, a little more Colorado rural landscape. So that's largely where we focus today. But we're, I mean, you, I know people who do it all over. There's a lot of people who work the Southeast. Um, we have just gravitated towards the Southwest. So New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Texas. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's um, the model works best when they, when you find, uh, and usually this is broken down by counties. But if you find a county that has a lot of vacant land and it's decently priced, you know, you don't want to. Obviously, if if you're looking at a million dollar ranch, that person is virtually never going to sell that to a person, right? You're going to list it with a broker and you're going to go out and, and get a market price for it. So, you know, similar concept if you get in some of these higher priced neighborhoods where lots are 50, 100,000 plus, uh, it's just, it's a harder sell to get somebody to part with their property um, for 30 cents on the dollar. So, you know, there, there, there are characteristics that you can look for in the business that are more conducive to operating your business at a, at a scale that is worth it. You know, it's, it's so interesting. I, I guess if I'm sitting here listening to you, it seems like, and this inevitably is going to be an oversimplification, and I'm sure it's not easy because, I don't know, I've, I've never experienced anything that's easy. But generally, it does sound like, you know, at that lower end of the scale, like you're saying, you know, the acquisition side being two grand, 2,500 or whatever, it's not really, to your point, it's just not enough money for somebody that's selling it for all the reasons that you enumerated earlier. It could be a divorce or an inheritance or, you know, they thought they were going to build their dream home and, you know, that notion passed or whatever. You're not talking about enough money that it's like a huge emotion or there's, you know, a million dollars at stake. And so it sounds like, you know, just with the marketing, dialing down your marketing, which I would assume is largely direct mail, it's not shooting fish in a barrel, but kind of shooting fish in a barrel. And then really the variable is just your ability to kind of learn it and master it and create a system out of it. Because there's so much land out there that it just sounds like being able to basically just connect all the dots. Yeah, exactly. So uh, on the surface, it is a very simple model, buy low, sell high. As with anything, as you just uh, articulated, there are nuances once you get a little more deeper into it. And there are ways to optimize the business. And so, you know, you can, you can target people that um, are tax delinquent and help solve it. Part of what we try to do is solve a problem for someone. And, you know, those issues that we just listed out are oftentimes an issue for people. They don't know how, like, oh, my spouse passed away. I don't know how to even work with the county to facilitate a sale. And that's when we'll say, hey, we'll handle all that for you. You know, we'll go get you the right forms that you need to, to fill out. And we'll even file them with the county and do things. And We'll try to take those extra steps to, to help you know someone. And, and to your point, genuinely, gen generally, 
when people are willing to sell, there is a lack of emotional attachment, right? So, hey, my husband bought this property years ago. We were going to do this. He passed away. I don't even want to do anything with it. My kids don't want it. I just pay taxes every year on it. And it's, it's a thorn in my side or, you know, all those different things. And so you can, to some degree, you can target, uh, like I said, people on, on tax delinquent roles. You can look at people that bought their properties 10 plus years ago. You can, you know, you can, you can let the data help some of that, or you can just out there and, and canvas it. And, you know, we, we also run our business. I mean, I come from supply chain operations. I'm super heavily, you know, in the, in the business, we call it a scorecard, but you have basically your metric of dashboard of metrics in front of you. And so, you know, we, we try to refine our business model based on, Hey, we sent out a thousand mailers. We only got five back this time. What's going on? We need to tweak our price or, or do something there. And so, you know, there's definitely some level of intelligence you can feed back into it and, and make it as complicated as you want, but it can be very simple as well. Interesting. It's very, very interesting. It sounds so entrepreneurial. And again, you know, inevitably there's work and, you know, Oh yeah, but but it does sound kind of cool, and yeah. uh, you know, again, you're kind of living the dream where you don't have somebody at Microsoft. By the way, just a quick aside, is I have a nephew that worked at LinkedIn for a handful of years, got mm. acquired, got acquired by Microsoft, which I'm sure you know, and he hated Microsoft, and so it was <laughs> pretty much like what you're saying. And uh, anyway, hey, here- I I, uh, I you know Microsoft was a was a fantastic company to work for. I think there are certain, uh, as with any company, and, and you know, I, I have joked about this my whole career in the W-2 world was I got in the wrong side of the equation, right? I got in operations and manufacturing where it's all about cost cutting. If you work in sales or marketing or, you know, whatever, it's all about whining and dining and, um, you know, the perks and those kind of things. So I, I was always on the, I was always on the receiving end of, uh, of the layoffs and um, cost cutting activities and things like that. So similarly at Microsoft, if you're in, you know, there are certain departments where they, I'm sure are investing heavily in, software engineers and um, new business development activities and sales and marketing. It just so happens that, you know, when they took over the handset division, we were in supply chain. And again, it's all about, you know, cost and squeezing out and uh, managing your vendors uh, as tightly as you can. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, but you know, it, it's a, it's a major company. It's, they do have wonderful employees. I think Satya Nadella has done a wonderful job since he's kind of taken over the helm, but yeah, there, there can, I can imagine coming from a, uh, what I would envision LinkedIn as very much of a startup mentality company run by, you know, Reed Hoffman, who's uh, kind of a genius at some of those things. And, and then, yeah, you all of a sudden get cast into a, a different world where, by the way, you are the acquired party. So you already have a, a certain, you know, you're, you're not officially part of the team because, oh, we just bought you. So it's a tricky thing, but it was, and he, he moved on, but, uh, all kibbles and bits aside, you know, I, I wanted to use that term and this is the first time I used it. I don't know if you watched <laughs> Ted, La- you watch Ted Lasso. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you did. You, did you, yeah. you did watch Ted Lasso? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of the best shows on TV. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you're the first person, Mike, that I've been able to deploy that. I'll give some bits aside. <laughs> I'm honored. <Thank> you. <laughs> you're a funny guy. I can't wait to meet you in a couple of days, man, in Denver. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, we're, we're going to have to at least shake, shake hands. So on the multifamily side, wh- what are you doing there? So what are you acquiring? How are you doing it? Or, you know, you bringing in partners in. You said you'd partner, you're partnering with Mark Kenny. What, what market size, all that good stuff? Yeah, sure. So we are in what's known as a syndication model where we pull in investor partners to fund the down payment essentially, right? So if you buy a property for 10 million, let's say like a house, you need 20%, you need 2 million in equity to, to, to raise. And so we'll go out to an investor base and say, Hey, you know, invest in this deal will generate a certain amount of returns where, um, that, that's roughly the syndication model where we focus is no, well, we personally focus, uh, in a, in a few markets, I'll get to that, but you know, the business generally focuses all across the U S and, and potentially outside of it. Our strategy is more in the value add space. So we look for B and C class assets, which just simply means they're, they have some age on them and some wear and tear. They may not be in a luxury market, you know, which would be considered an A class property. So we look for those B and C class assets where they, like I said, have some wear and tear on them. We can come in and implement a renovation program. We can go into the units and update them, uh, freshen them up, put in new carpet or hardwood or vinyl flooring, update the fixtures. Maybe the maybe the property amenities need some work, such as the you know the common areas, the swimming pools, the gyms, all that kind of stuff. Well, all of that in in the commercial real estate space value is generated through the revenue that your business is making. And so if you can come in, implement a value add renovation program, increase your rents by $100, well, that then magnifies throughout the the business and exponentially increases the value of the asset. And so it's forced appreciation versus market appreciation, which is what we've heavily been seeing the last two years with everything just going up uh, in price just because the market is going up. So yeah, that's that's a bit of our strategy and approach. We're targeting typically 150 unit properties plus. The business model is such that, you know, up to about 20, $25 million purchase price, it, it can be effective. Once you start getting 25 million plus, then unless you're bringing in institutional money like a private equity firm or just a larger you know firm that can invest uh, it's harder to to generate because now you're talking about 10 million dollars up front or 15 million dollars up front and so you know to do that with a bunch of individual investors that you know are going to put on average 100k a, into a deal well it, it just becomes really un, unruly to manage that that many investors in a in a certain company so you know our deals usually range between five and $20 million. Lydia and I perf- personally, we are looking in the Texas markets. So pretty much between Dallas and San Antonio along the I-35 corridor, as has been happening lately, the temperature of the what they call the primary markets. So, you know, Atlanta's, uh, Dallas, Austin, Houston, even San Antonio, it's just super hot. I mean, it, everybody's really trying to get in and, and take advantage of uh, of what were some some great deals and some market appreciation. It's still there. So that's have the effect of, of pushing a lot of people into finding what we call secondary and tertiary markets. So our latest acquisition in November was in Waco, Texas. Well, 
not a lot of people have heard about Waco, although a lot more people have heard about Waco with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines and their show Fixer Upper, and um, they kind of put put some national spotlight. But, you know, those kind of markets. So Waco is growing. It's part of, it's enjoying the Texas effect, which is just, you know, super business friendly population influx. Uh, a lot of uh, factors are conducive. Uh, it's it's a it's a landlord friendly state, meaning you can take action more readily on people that don't pay their rents or that are um, you know bad uh, tenants. And so there's a lot of factors um, that that kind of um, steer us into that market. Um, we also like Colorado Springs, which is just about 30 minutes away from our home here. It's just a super expensive market, so it's a little bit more challenging to find affordable deals, but. They're out there. We've we've looked at a few, and and hopefully we'll we'll land one. And so, you know, primarily those are our two active markets where we are looking to make the purchase and be the lead sponsor on a deal. We also join other people's deals as investors, or uh, we help them um, with other aspects of the deal, be it investor relations or raising money or or certain things. In those types of deals, we're a little more market agnostic. We just look for a healthy market and a healthy deal. But um, yeah, there's there's a range of things. And then, you know, like I mentioned, we, we do partner with Mark Kinney on our deals usually just because um, he has a large investor base. He has uh, just a decade of experience under his belt. And so he's a solid partner for us. He helps us uh, acquire financing um, as you need, you know, uh, a lot of times on these deals, you need a certain amount of net worth, liquidity, experience, all goes into um, being able to secure a loan. And so it's hard. I, I could not stand in front of a Fannie Mae, a Freddie Mac, or a large bank and and probably cover what's needed to take down a, a $10 plus million property. So will, yeah. he, will he be a, a KP on a deal? Yeah. So he KPs with me. So right, we'll Got we'll it. go in and, and partner on on uh, what's called a, a key partner. I used that on a previous podcast, and they either didn't know or they were just clarifying. But on the deal in Waco, what what's the vintage on that on that building, and how many units is it? It's a 168 unit property. It's a 73 vintage. It's uh, we we bought it for just under 15 million, and we'll put a million into it in terms of renovations and upgrades and. Uh, our plan, our business model was to hold it or is to hold it for five years, um, perform the renovations in the first year and a half, let's say, drive up the value. We're on a bridge loan right now, which just basically means we're kind of on a a non-agency loan, not Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Uh, and so we have a, a two-year term, so we'll we'll ride that out. And then the business plan is to refinance into an agency loan. And the only reason we have been doing that as well as most people in the business lately is just because Fannie and Freddie Mae stopped. They stopped giving loans that included money for capital renovations. They pretty much were just covering an assets purchase price. And that was just, they got a little bit defensive during the, the time of, of COVID. Um, but I, I believe I just saw yesterday, they're starting to release on that. So anyway, that that's the the Waco deal. We'll, we'll, um, I have seen a lot of deals lately that are just going through one or two or three year hold. I mean, the the jump in the market, I think has led a lot of people to rethink their business case and, and to, uh, cash out. They're, they're overachieving their returns. I won't say commitments, but their returns projections to uh, investors. And so there's a lot of properties coming on the market that, you know, have only been held for 12 or 24 months. And 
they're still value add because they haven't you know completed their value add program. But yeah, that, that at least our plan with the Waco property is to hold it for five years. So we just bought it in November, and uh, but we'll see. We'll have to see you know when that when that two year period comes up if if it's in the best interest of our investors to enact a sale or to refinance. How much do you think you are going to put in on average per unit in renovation? Right now we're averaging about 5,500. So uh, we had a smaller projection, but you know, inflation. So labor is more expensive, materials are more expensive. Uh, so we're, we're right at about 5,500 per unit going in on, on ours. And I was just going to say our, our business plan was to renovate uh, 80% of the units. So, um, you know, there's some combination of, the fact that you just can't realistically get into every unit. Um, some people are long-term leaseholders, as well as there's at least there's at least a mindset out there that it's nice to leave a little bit of work left to be done for uh, a subsequent buyer. Meat on the bone, as they say. I don't know if that's manifests in reality or not. I don't know if I would buy a property if it only had twenty percent uh, of value add left to go. But that's the the business plan anyway. What, and, and how much do you anticipate on average getting more per month per unit? You know, our business case was uh, increasing rents on average uh, right at about $100. And we did that business case back in the fall. And we're already looking at being able to capture $170 um, just because the, you know, the markets and uh, rents and everything are going up. So we're already more than offsetting an increase in uh, labor and materials costs. So uh, some upside to our business case, ideally. And then how much do you, and, and you know, I'm asking these hard numbers. So if you, if you know them, that's great. If you don't, I, that's fine. Is how much are you setting aside reserves per unit? Uh, like replacement reserves? We yeah. have $300 a month per unit. 300 per month per unit. Yeah. So it's a super interesting deal. You know, like you, I, I get the feeling you listen to a podcast or two yourself, and so do I, you know, in addition to doing my own, is there's this guy out there that's kind of, um, I don't know, he's kind of making a reputation for himself about his views on Class C, and his point is that it's just, it's risky only because of functional obsolescence and that you just don't know, even with inspections, you can't, you can never really know what's behind the walls. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, Mark's view of that, you know, Mark having done this a long time, I mean, what, what's the thinking about something like that? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting, having been through several of these deals, we always hire out professional due diligence to bring a company in to walk every single unit, get the exterior looked at, you know, sewer line scoped uh, as fully as we can so that there are as few surprises as possible when you do get in and, and start operating. You know, there's always going to be some level of, of uh, surprise coming up. But so there's that aspect of it. And then you know, before that, uh, Mark drives a very um, I, I would say everybody probably says, oh, I underwrite conservatively. Well, you know, Mark, I would say really actually does that to a higher degree in terms of a lot of checks and balances. You know, are you are you holding back enough reserves? And I think I said per month on that, but it's per unit uh, per year on the on the 300. Um, but I was um, just doing the math on that and going, it didn't <laughs> large, okay, well, That's a ahead. large number. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. Yeah. So do you have enough reserves in your budget? Is there a contingency uh, baked in? Uh, do you have operating contingencies that you're banking for? Are your rents 
maxed out or are you still, you know, being a little bit conservative, relying on, you know, ideally you're relying on your own personal uh, or, or someone knowledgeable rather than, you know, OMs can be a bit flowery in terms of uh, uh, optimistic in, in types of things. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a level of conservatism that, that um, is baked in to overcome exactly those types of things, right? You have a, a boiler that goes out or, you know, some, some unforeseen thing that happens uh, to account for those types of things. That's, that's one of the reasons I really like it. And, you know, it, it can be frustrating at times because more often than not, we will not be as competitive as another syndication group that is bidding on a property that's willing to take uh, an 8% cash on cash return or a a lesser um, total return. But it does allow for overachieving the ROI projections. And, you know, in the long term, that really, uh, and, th- and that's what I'm in it for. And I know that's what Mark's in it for. And I know his philosophy is a lot about that. It's not about the quick, the quick buck. It's really about the longevity in the industry. And that comes with your reputation, which comes based on your returns. And so um, there's, there's a lot of conscientious thought about all of that going in before we make an acquisition. Got it. And how are you uh, dealing with management of it? Well, so that's where, that's the reason we target 100, 150 plus units so that we can do professional property management. Um, we'll, we'll uh, usually it's market dependent, depending on, you know, who are the players in the market. And then there's a lot of knowledge sharing within the group about how different agencies are performing. If you're talking about property management, if you're talking about asset right. management. I'm property. Okay, yeah. So I guess in that one, I feel like I rudely cut you off. I apologize. I did not intend to. No, uh, no, I was I was uh, summarizing. So on that deal, like so, Waco, you know, Mark, he, he himself is in Texas. I guess did you is your third party property management company is like that's somebody that Mark is is used. I don't know if he has any other property in Waco or if any of his students are in Waco or I guess how did you find the management company? Well, we were the first into Waco as far as out of his group, so we we kind of pioneered the market there. But we looked at a few different. There are some local operators already in Waco. We happen to select um, uh, Capstone Realty Services, their nationwide property management company, one of, if not the biggest. And their headquarters out of Austin, which is you know an hour and a half away from Waco, so they're very close by. They they have had properties in Waco. They didn't have one actively under management, but um, we decided to go with them. And so they they do manage other properties for the group in and around Texas. So we had a, a working working relationship with them and we're able to, they helped us out up front in some, some of the underwriting and analysis as well as um, in due diligence. And then um, uh, now are, are running with the property management. Got it. That sounds like a pretty sober choice. Well, listen, my friend, this has been just fantastic. I'm just so happy for you uh, and your wife that you guys have so successfully reinvented and, and wound up in a place. I'm kind of gathering that is even better than you thought. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but you're just, you've made it happen. You're making it happen as a couple. I'm just so happy for you. If one were to uh, want to get a hold of you, how, how would they do that, Mike? So Mike at DeatonEquityPartners.com is an easy email to reach me at. Our website has uh, some good contact information. In fact, if, if, if anybody's interested in land uh, or multifamily, 
or getting in contact with us, uh, we have a landing page at DeatonEquityPartners.com slash freedom. And we have a, you know, a few uh, downloads that you can get that just give you an overview about what is land investing, who are, you know, few, a few of the key resources you can go to. I, I call out, you know, Mark and a few others. Um, same thing with multifamily, some of the benefits and things like that. That's probably a, a great one-stop shop. I think we have a phone number up there, a couple of emails and different things. So that's a... That's that's why we've tried to put that together for anybody that wants more of a one-stop shop there. Fantastic. Mike Deaton, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have and uh, look forward to meeting in a couple of days. I have, Roger. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a, a genuine pleasure to uh, get to know you here um, over the airwaves. And uh, let's definitely make a point to uh, at least shake a hand. You got it. You're in talk, a few days. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>